Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So I'm here with Warren Haynes. I don't know where we are. We're at Universal Music HQ, I guess. I think so. That sounds about right. Um, what's going on with you? You're obviously over here to talk about your new record. Um, but in the grand sort of uh, trials and tribulations of life, what's been sort of going through your mind over the last week or so, Warren? Because obviously we've you know lost your dear friend and bandmate. Yeah, you know, we lost Butch first uh, four months ago, and that was really tragic and and now losing greg which i was a little more prepared for because he had been ill but it's uh it's still been really hard to to deal with you know I've, uh, greg and i've known each other since 1981 i was 80 so I, yeah you knew him for quite a long time before yeah. even actually joining the, the yeah. allman brothers full-time i joined the allman brothers in 1989 and the year before that he put out a solo record called Just Before the Bullets Fly, which was a song that I had written. Uh, and so we knew each other. Uh, but then, of course, when I joined the band, we became very close. I think when you write music with someone and you're in a creative partnership as well, that obviously deepens and strengthens the relationship and the friendship, right? Absolutely. Uh, writing songs together is a bonding experience, playing music together. And of course, he and myself and Alan Woody uh, shared a tour bus when we were touring. So it was the three of us always hanging out and listening to music and joking around and laughing. 
they're one of those bands i know they're so 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 iconic and huge but i think they're much more of an american institution than perhaps a british one and i don't think for me perhaps you know i missed out being of a certain age and not being old enough but as far as i'm aware the allman brothers legacy didn't quite perhaps translate to the same extent in the uk because in the us they were like the biggest thing weren't they yeah uh, long before i joined the band i think in 1975 they were playing stadiums and and uh, uh there was one point when the allman brothers was the biggest band in america um i don't know why they didn't choose to cultivate the european art audience as much uh they came once in the 70s briefly in the 80s and then we did a tour here in 91 uh but i think uh they i always felt that they should have tapped into the european scene much more than they did well we'll talk about it in a little while and you see over here right now there's a huge resurgence in yeah southern country blues kind of outlaw infused rock and roll right now it's arguably as popular as it's ever been in the uk anyway yeah um talk to me about your musical heritage your roots i guess the bands which switched you on and inspired you early you know in your life to pick up a guitar and pursue this path well i started uh singing before I started playing guitar and all the stuff that I was listening to at that time was soul music. Uh, James Brown, uh, The Four Tops, The Temptations, Otis Redding, Sam and Dave. Uh, With my two older brothers, I was also hearing The Beatles and The Stones, but I was really young, you know, uh, seven, eight, nine years old. Uh, The first Allman Brothers record came out when I was nine. And that was the same time that I was hearing Cream and Jimi Hendrix and uh, Johnny Winter and a lot of stuff like that. It's a lot of good music, right? Yeah, there was so so much great music at that time period. And that, I think, is what made me want to play guitar. Why do you think that was? Do you think it was just culturally what was going on? There was obviously civil rights, there was Vietnam. Do you think all of that was the fire that you know created all of this art because for me it's never been as good ever since yeah i think so too i think something about 1967 to 73 74 there was just this fertile period where things were growing exponentially and a lot of it probably to do with the culture changes and everything that was going it was a very intense time period but uh the white people in America were starting to get turned on to a lot of great black music and they were starting to interpret it their own way. I guess for the first time ever, segregation was beginning to truly fade on like an actual emotional, cultural level. Yeah, and that's, to me, one of the things that was so remarkable about the Allman Brothers, who really formed in 1968 in the Deep South with a black drummer, uh, Which was radical, right? At that time period, more so than people can, can fathom, I think. Uh, and But it was a very intense time, as you say, and there was so much great music as a result. And I was in the thick of it as a kid, just soaking it up. You know? Where did you grow up? Asheville, North Carolina. So in the South, but in a very liberal part of the South. Um a lot of great music. But where I'm from, there were tons of great guitar players. There was also a, a big like bluegrass scene and stuff like that, uh, folk music. But So much like the Allman Brothers, you yourself were emerged in so many different styles. Yeah. From a very early absolutely. age. Absolutely. You know, uh, 
And again, thanks to my two older brothers that had jazz records and blues records and and, uh, folk music, and my dad listened to country music, and so I was hearing a lot of different stuff. And so getting past my soul music roots and getting turned on to rock and roll music, that really opened things up. I guess a lot of people don't really understand or aren't maybe aware of Dwayne Allman's contribution to a lot of soul music as a studio musician. Sure. Uh, Aretha Franklin, Wilson Pickett, a lot of uh, really great soul records made in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, were with Dwayne Allman playing guitar. And that's where Eric Clapton heard about Dwayne was from hearing uh, records like Wilson Pickett's version of Hey Jude, which had a great Dwayne Allman solo on it. Uh, a lot of the British guitar players that discovered Dwayne, it was because they were soul music fans, you know. And I was reading earlier on about, was it the Hippie Crash Pad or something it was called? Basically, they had like a communal. What I like about the band is that I guess from day one for them, it was about conscious kind of mind expansion and i don't mean necessarily taking psychedelic drugs although that was arguably a big part of it i think that they were on a quest weren't they to really kind of realize that hippie dream and make it yeah an alternative lifestyle and a reality i think so and and i think at that time that's the only way you could do it was to immerse yourself and dive headlong into it you know uh, i was telling someone recently they they did 300 shows a year in a, a Winnebago. I don't know if that translates, a little motorhome, yeah. you know, and they were just constantly on the road exhausting themselves, but the end result was this amazing music because they were living and breathing music. And literally sharing the same airspace and... Yeah, and everything else. <laughs> they were a wild group. I mean, by the time you joined the, the Fold, was was the partying side still very much in full effect? And are you yourself someone who, perhaps in your younger years, liked to indulge in that side of rock and roll? Well, when I joined the Allman Brothers, I was 28. Uh, the rest of the guys... Uh, 15 to 17 years older than me so the partying aspect had died down a lot you know um the um most of the guys were either sober or trying to get sober. Uh, What's that like walking into that environment as someone who's probably never been exposed to it really before that you know level i mean i had been exposed to it but like you say not not on that level and it's uh it was a learning experience for me all the way around because you know here i I was joining one of my favorite bands of all times i was being thrown into this scene where we were playing these huge arenas and, and outdoor concerts and every aspect of it was a bit overwhelming you know so i was just kind of trying to catch my breath and <laughs> see and what catch happened. up yeah exactly yeah, yeah yeah the jam band element they were maybe the first band <clears throat> to pioneer that style perhaps you think in a popular way in a commercially successful way and what was the impact of that on you who's obviously someone who's continued that that style that approach to you know live music but also the studio side as well it's obviously kind of seeped and embedded into what you do yeah you know uh, i think the allman brothers and the grateful dead were the two bands that kind of uh, pioneered the the entire jam band movement in the states um growing up in the south i was much more of an allman brothers fan if you grew up on the west coast you were much more of a grateful dead fan for myself to eventually to be part of both of those things was pretty overwhelming because I was able to kind of 
gain this perspective from the inside and see the way it worked uh, from a different angle than you would normally be able to, to check out, you know. Are you talking musically there yeah. or from the personal side? Well, or a bit of both? Mostly, mostly musical. Right. You know, but with every band, there are all these little things that, that happen, uh, musically speaking, that you can only... Uh, catch so much of from a distance you know when I when I started playing with Dickie Betts in the 80s I would ask him a lot of these questions about how different things worked and some of the answers were very eye-opening sometimes very simple but sometimes like wow you, you never knew that you know uh, one of the things that I asked him was when they did these harmony guitar lines um he said usually he came up with the melody and Dwayne came up with the harmony and he said it just that was just kind of the way it usually worked and it was usually by mistake. Dickie would start playing something and Dwayne would start following him. It was never like, oh, let's do this. It just happened on the fly, so to speak. And, you know, when we listen to that music, something about the looseness is part of it that makes it very human and, and very organic. But a lot of people take for granted and think it was more rehearsed than it actually was. So I guess as your career got going in the 80s was when technology synthesizers, things like that were maybe at their peak, right? And the way yeah. music was being written and made was changing drastically. What did that mean at that time for bands like, say, the Allman Brothers? Was it difficult? Were you sort of... Did you feel like you were getting left behind? Did you feel like the focus was sort of changing and going in a different direction? What was that like being in a, like an authentic, rootsy, traditional rock and roll band during the age of New Wave? And Well, I think for them, before I joined the band, uh, because they broke up in 81 because of that. They just felt like they didn't really fit into the, the current music scene. They made a couple of records that were an attempt to kind of uh, exist in that world, and they weren't very proud of the records, and the records weren't very successful. So in 81, they broke up, and the reformation in 89 was to promote, A, uh, the 20th anniversary, and B, a, a box set that was available of their retrospective career so when i joined it was for one tour uh like a reunion tour and it at that time they didn't know how successful it was going to be but i remember dickie betts telling me that he was looking at the success that stevie ray vaughn was having in america and the grateful dead was having a resurgence in their career as well and he thought Somewhere in between those two things is the Allman Brothers, so maybe it's time for us to come back. But I think there was a good eight years when they were allergic to the current state of affairs. You know? Wow. Let's talk about the dead. Um, you've sort of tipped your hat to them already and said what a valuable and an inspirational band they were to you personally. How did you get introduced to those guys? Was it after Jerry had passed, or were you already sort of familiar, and did you have a relationship with the whole band whilst he was still around? Well, I first... Uh, was introduced to their music through my oldest brother who had some of their records i wasn't nearly as big a grateful dead fan as i was an alma brothers fan i didn't i saw them once in 79 just out of curiosity i was 19 and i didn't see them again until 89 and i saw them five times while jerry was still alive i uh, had 
opportunities to meet him, which I never did. I just thought, no, I'll meet him next time. You know, there was one really memorable uh, experience where when Bruce Hornsby was playing in The Dead, he invited myself and my wife to come and watch from the stage. And we were literally sitting behind his piano on the stage at Madison Square Garden in, in New York. And during the break, someone said, do you want to come meet Jerry and I was just like no I'll I'll do it next time and there was no next time so a a valuable lesson learned there Uh, it was Phil Lesh the bass player who called me a few years later and said that uh, he had made a list of musicians that he wanted to work with and would I be interested in coming to California and just experimenting and I said yes and that began a very fruitful relationship between us which also led to me touring with the dead in 2003 and 2009 um i became a big fan later on like post 89 uh i started just discovering how many great songs they had written and that was the thing that drew me in the most i think they're a band that again have always eluded me i'm aware of them and i'm aware through their i guess through hunter s thompson's writing because he was arguably their biggest fan, wasn't he? And he yeah. would constantly write about their, you know, amazing talents. Yeah. And, um, but for me, again, they've always sort of eclipsed me a little bit. What could you sort of tell me about that band, why they're important, and maybe, you know, point me in the right direction of a good record that would be like the quintessential dead record to get someone started and down that rabbit hole? I think the two best studio records would be American Beauty and Working Man's Dead. Both of those just have... An entire uh, list of great songs, really tremendous songs. But it was the, on stage where they really kind of fleshed them out and turned them into other things. They were one of the first bands uh, that garnered this audience that followed them around probably the first band uh they did a different set list every night the audience never knew what songs they were going to play and the audience uh would go from town to town to town to town following the grateful dead around and that's become a big part of the jam band scene in america as well um with less LSD. Yeah, well, <laughs> arguably. <laughs> but they, and that was definitely a big part of it. Yeah. Um, you know, the, I think, you know, I wasn't there. I was too young and didn't know any of the guys till decades later. But what they discovered was uh, something discovered under the influence of, of LSD and, and what the music they created and the, the approach to jamming that they created was uh, kind of created that way and so the audience was tapping into that uh and it's a beautiful thing man it's a beautiful time yeah i'm I'm really bummed that i missed it yeah and i missed it as well i'm I'm older than you but i was too young as well but again having two older brothers i i lived vicariously uh, yeah vicariously for sure and i and i you know i got exposed to all that great music that way i guess Uh, by the time you join the dead they're not taking acid anymore I, I wouldn't think, no. but uh, I could never swear to it. <laughs> <laughs> Very well chosen answer. <laughs> Love it. Um, well, let's talk about Government Mule. Where did that project begin? What was the inspiration behind that? And then we'll bring it up to uh, to the present day a little later on. Uh, 94, uh, 
I had joined the Allman Brothers in 89. I made a solo record that came out in 93. And in 94, myself and Alan Woody, who was the bass player in the Allman Brothers, uh, we were talking of doing a side project, really just kind of uh, for the fun of it. No pressure, no aspirations. Uh, We were just going to do like one low budget record have some fun do a short little tour and then go back to our gig in the Alma Brothers because it was it was a full time thing uh the chemistry that the three of us had when we first got together was pretty undeniable and it started quickly kind of turning into a a real band and beyond a side project and then that coincided with the fact that in 95 and 96 the original members of the Alma Brothers were not getting along very well, and there was a lot of tension, a lot of friction. Why was that? Uh, it was always that way, you know. Always, right. uh, yeah, I mean, you know, they they had a history of being together for two or three years and then imploding, and uh, it was amazing when I joined the band. The band stayed together longer than it ever really had, so I was just kind of psyched to, to see it in a positive uh, light, so to speak. Was it a fun band to be in? Yeah. It was? Yeah. Uh, so you although know, there was problems and... And usually the problems didn't affect me. It was all between the original guys who had had uh, known each other for so long, you know. Like so they a, didn't put it on you or throw you in the middle of... Well, I did get thrown in the middle sometimes uh, in the way that I would become the liaison between Greg Allman, Greg Allman and Dickie Bits, who didn't want to speak to each other, so they would each talk to me, and that was a little annoying. But at the same time, it was an important position, you know, like somebody had to do it, and the fact that it was me was a little uh, frustrating. But I also realized what a wonderful opportunity for me to be in, in a band that, that I had loved for so long, you know. And to have such a core key role, yeah, and because to be the allowed, mediator is not to be sniffed at. Yeah, you know, that's a very they always vital. Uh, they always gave me a, a lot of latitude from the very beginning. I mean, they brought me in as a songwriter, uh, as a singer. They you know they they were never. Uh, close-minded about what the new band could be and i always gave them credit for that because so many bands that re-emerged uh would have like the new guys in the front or you know, the, the old guys in the front and the new guys in the back and know the your old, place kind yeah of and the almond brothers was never like that uh but the friction between those guys by the time 96 rolled around was pretty heavy and so woody and i just kind of bowed out and and started focusing on government mule full-time and what was the characteristics which really defined that group from the offset? Well, we wanted to... The the concept of it uh, was to bring back the improvisational rock trio based on, like, Cream and Jimi Hendrix experience and stuff like that. So but, going right back to what inspired you in the first yeah, place, Absolutely. Right? But also uh, what we called a trio plus a singer, like Led Zeppelin and The Who and Free and bands like that. Uh, and we just felt like no one was doing that, and that with the right drummer, we would be able to to kind of pull it pull it off. And so I thought of Matt Apps, who I had played with uh, in Dickie Betts' band. And the first time the three of us played together, there was just something magical that happened. And so we instantly kind of became uh, brothers. You know, it was it was a, an interesting time period. Talk to me about the 90s, what was going on musically right then, because you seem to me to be someone who has embraced that alternative rock era 
yeah. uh, perhaps maybe not in an overtly musical way, but you don't seem to be someone that's sort of, you know, been intimidated or afraid or... Well, I felt like... Talking about bands in particular, like Nirvana, Pearl yeah, Jam. I thought they were a breath of fresh air. I, I really uh, was not connecting too much to the scene that came right before that. Uh, what I guess would still be the continuation of, like, 80s hair band music, you know. But hearing uh, Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and Alice in Chains for the first time... It was like, wow, this is real music. This is people making music that they, they're making from their heart regardless of what, how they think people are going to respond to it. And that's kind of what music's supposed to be. And it wasn't that in the previous uh, rock period, I think. You know? So to me, it was, uh, I was really uh, glad that some music that heavy was coming out. Did you ever meet any of those dudes? Did you ever play shows with them? And did you ever... You've worked with Les Claypool, right, from Primus. Yeah. You've done some stuff with Les. Les and I have done a lot of stuff together. Uh, I, he's an interesting guy. He's great, yeah. He's a wonderful player. He's a, he's a zany, funny man. I, I love him dearly. Uh, I met some of the guys in Pearl Jam, uh, Eddie Vedder, at one of the like uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame events one time. Um, I... I met, uh, I think I met Chris Cornell briefly, but I didn't know him. We had we had uh, emailed back and forth about him being one of the guest vocalists on our record "Shout" that we put out three years ago, and which, which uh, never happened, did it? No, we no. he was uh, he was very interested in actually writing lyrics for one of the tunes, which uh, never came to fruition. But he was very. Sweet. We had a, a, a lot of uh, email conversations about it, and and I was very, uh, a, a very much a fan of what he did. I think he was tremendously talented. Um, Jerry Cantrell from Alice in Chains sang on the Government Mule version of the song "Effigy," uh, and that Jerry and I are buddies. We we see each other every now and then because he's in L.A. and I'm in New York. But uh, you know that whole scene, I, I just embraced because I, I felt. It was a real thing. Right on. Uh, you mentioned the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame there. If you could tell me about it, if you're comfortable telling me about it, was the moment when Greg watched that back, his speech, was that the tipping point for him when he decided, I need to sort myself out now? Yeah, he was in, a bad, sh he was in bad shape at that time. And I think him watching the films of that, uh, and, and even physically, he looked terrible. Uh and he had just uh, found himself in a place that, you know, I mean, unfortunately, he struggled with uh, with alcoholism and, and addiction his whole life. But uh, that was, I think, the the final straw for him, you know, and I was very proud of him. He had remained sober for a long, long time and, and uh, even quit smoking cigarettes, which nobody thought would ever happen, you know. Uh and that's a bittersweet time because, you know, we were being honored, but he was in a, a very strange place, you know. Did, what did he have to do? What was his step? Did he have to check into rehab? Yeah, ab yeah, absolutely. Not too long after that, you know. Um, and I guess his brother, I mean, to lose someone so close <clears throat> to you in such a horrific way. Yeah. I mean, the accident was, by all accounts, 
hardcore, wasn't it? Yeah, and they were so young. You know, yeah. Dwayne was, was twenty four when he, he died? was about to turn twenty five, right. and I mean, it's it's hard to fathom how much they accomplished in that short period of time. You know, um, to be that influential of a figure, a guitar player and, and band leader at age 24 is is pretty amazing because when I look at 24-year-old kids now and when, when I look at myself at 24, you're still a kid, you know, you, uh, you, have, a long, yeah. you have a long way to go. Yeah, you. I mean, that seems to be another trend of that era, yeah, that generation. Absolutely. Everyone was like, you know, I mean, there's that 27 Club thing and right. so many great artists have like changed the world in their mid-20s when they're, for all intents and purposes, still a kid yeah and and they seemed even from their physical appearance all the the people you're referring to seemed older than they were you know when i look at pictures of of jim morrison and duane allman and and uh paul kossoff and and people that uh they don't look like kids they had done a lot of living at that point did greg talk about his brother much yeah he talked about him uh mostly funny stories you know he he had a lot of fond memories and uh there were very few stories that were like sad it was always about something funny he remembered you know and what's what's your favorite personal memory or story of a time you spent with with greg greg well uh all the time that he and myself and alan woody spent on the bus hanging together was all all uh etched in, in my memory you know i think writing songs together uh when i was at his house in, in savannah we wrote uh several of the songs for the last allman brothers record hitting the note it was a, a really good time he was in a great place uh we had finally kind of uh reached a point writing together where there were no barriers we just felt uninhibited and and because you know uh it, when i joined the allman brothers i was writing mostly with dickie and since dickie and greg were kind of opposing camps so to speak i didn't write a lot with greg in the early days and he wasn't writing a lot as well and so eventually he and i decided to start writing together and wound up eventually writing you know 10 or 15 songs together uh and those are really fond memories for me what made him special in your opinion do you think well his voice was uh he's one of the great singers of all times you know as soon as he opened his mouth there was this instant connection with the audience that uh, was pretty undeniable you know and i was a fan as a kid and uh you know, I became pretty jaded through the years after being 25 years in, in the band. There were still nights that when, when he sang, I was just as moved. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I guess what you should be the most proud of is the fact that people sort of say that the final lineup of the Allman Brothers was the best it had been since the original, right? And the band sort of went out ultimately on a high after so many highs and lows. And it seems like the um, the kind of final chapter of that band is one of extreme triumph, right? It was amazing that the band actually stayed together for 14 years, that version of of the band, which is by far the longest uh, any Allman Brothers version ever stayed together. Um, and that band was tremendous. You know, the the band in uh, 89 through 97 with myself and, and Alan Woody was a, a wonderful band as, as well. Um, but the fact that we went out on top, as you say, was very important to all of us. The last six shows that we did together were, were great, and the very last show that we did was tremendous. Everybody left everything on the stage. We played for like three and a half hours. We played three sets, and uh, we all walked away feeling very proud. No one does that. I've never seen, apart from Springsteen, Yeah, no one plays for that long. Why yeah. not? You know, and, and you know, we known for playing a long time but we thought you know for the last show let's just give them everything we got you know uh and it was new york city which was a, a the band's biggest musical home you know they they always did wonderful in new york and uh it was just it was so nice and, and bittersweet in some ways because we all knew this is the time and, and the place that we want to stop touring you know uh with that particular night it just had this rejuvenated thing that was uh pretty uncanny what did you do the moment the set finished did you all go your separate ways did you go out for dinner did you sort of we hung for a little while there and then we had uh an uh, italian restaurant down the block that that we threw a little party and uh, just kind of any friends and family that wanted to come and hang out that weren't too tired just came and uh, drank and ate Italian food till daylight. Do you take a moment yourself to sort of process that and without being too morbid about the band do you have a moment almost to grieve for that project and then move on or are you just straight into the next thing? You know I was at that point just due to scheduling I had something like two days later you know uh, so I I didn't really have the opportunity to process it uh, the way I probably would have if I'd have gone from there to a vacation or something. Would you have liked to, or were you okay with just keeping that ball rolling? I, I was okay, but uh, it would have probably been nice to, to have a break, you know, but... You know, playing music is therapeutic, too, so it's... Uh, anytime there is something uh, major going on uh, music has a way of being a healing force, I think. Amen to that. Does politics interest you as an artist? 
Yeah, I don't know. Uh, as a as a person, absolutely. As an artist, to a certain extent, you know, I think we've made some political statements through the years, and uh, are on the new record there are, are a few. But um, I also think that a lot of kind of similar to what we talked about earlier, a lot of great music has come about due to political unrest and and uh i'm hoping that'll happen now i think we're entering or well we're not entering we're already <laughs> firmly in a dangerous unstable uncertain yeah um crazy time yeah it's on both sides of the pond it's more divided in the states right now than than i can remember in in my lifetime or at least in my adult lifetime and that's coming from someone who was there through the 60s. In the South, yeah. Uh, I grew up in the South in the 60s, and, of course, I was too young to know what, what a lot of that meant. But in my adult life, I've never seen people so polarized. I watched an amazing documentary recently on the criminalization of African Americans and how after slavery was abolished, they... The powers that be, whatever you want to call them, came up with new ways to keep a certain class and race of people subservient yeah. to the master. And it was a fascinating, and it wasn't like a crazy conspiracy thing. It was like, wow, and you know, there's something crazy, like 80% of all incarcerated people in America are African-American. And I mean, for you right now as an artist, as a songwriter, and you're talking about the division of this country that you're you know, proud to obviously be from and live in, what's important for you as someone with a platform to be saying and addressing? Well, and maybe there, perhaps not even overtly in the songs, but at shows as kind yeah. of translating a, a message. Well, there's a song uh, on the new Government Mule record called Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground, uh, and the lyric is probably mostly about uh, the divide between the African-American community and the police in, in New York, in, in, uh, in America. And, you know, I'm not uh, an expert on the subject, but, I, but I've witnessed plenty to uh, be qualified to write about this sort of thing. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing that's going on uh, in America right now is just uh, the division of uh, the upper, upper, upper class and everybody else. I mean, it's just like in so many other countries where all the money's going to the top, and it's uh, it's uncanny. You know, I, I think now about like how long until we have the first trillionaire. Like that's yeah. that's a little scary, huh? Because uh, even to have a billion dollars is unfathomable. You, you know that the average person can't wrap their head around what a billion dollars is, and some people have a hundred of them. You know, which is crazy. It's totally crazy. It's really worrying for me as someone who lives in England to sort of witness how completely disillusioned the working class of this country are with the party labor that are supposed to represent their interests and that's why in this country and in america i think yeah. you have these people with extreme views being embraced by so many people is because and i'm trying to see it from those people's side yeah they obviously feel completely disillusioned and let down by 
years of systematic lies that have yeah. been f- and now all of a sudden here comes along someone with orange skin and <laughs> and, a, and a white wig and tells them you know that he's going to solve all their problems and yeah. they go oh yeah okay here's the guy we can finally get behind he speaks the truth yeah because for some reason they think of him as being an average joe which he absolutely is not um you know i, I grew up in the south and and in the South, there's a big problem with people voting against their own self-interest. And, Crazy to me as well. Yeah, and some of it's due to being misinformed. But uh, as you mentioned, there is uh, this kind of multi-decade systematic problem that's been going on, and people genuinely have something to bitch about. It's just don't buy into the wrong solution, which is really what's happening now. And and it's very unfortunate. Maybe uh, we have to go through this to get to the next step that we can only hope. But uh, right now, I just see people cutting off their own tails. What do you think the the steps are towards, you know, a solution that is actually going to hopefully benefit and help those that need it and what do we as human beings have to do and i'm not saying that you have the answers because none of us really do otherwise hopefully we'd be in a better position but what's your thoughts on where we need to go to try and heal and come together and overcome the first thing in in the states is to get the money out of politics i mean they spend so much money since they passed what's called citizens united where corporations are considered people uh, and so now they're allowed to contribute to campaigns, et cetera, et cetera. From that point forward, the ruination of American politics has just been, like, drastic. And so th- that's the first step, I think. But people have to get involved, you know. Uh, that's the key thing, I Absolutely. Think. You know, you got to inform yourself, and you got to make sure that the information you have is real, yeah, there's such a problem with, uh, uh, you know, in the States, uh, and, and you guys have dealt with it here for a long time as well. There's a lot of people being formed by organizations that aren't being truthful, and it's it's very and certainly not objective. Right. And so I, I don't know. I mean, I keep thinking, well, maybe as you watch the TV and someone's talking, maybe there should be fact-checking simultaneously. But then, of course, someone would hack into the fact-checking and change that, too. You know, So it, it's, it's hard to say because technology is ahead of us right now. We have to catch up to technology, I think. And try and direct it in the right way. Yeah, utilize it as a tool instead of a weapon and, and – uh, you know, we we can do that. I just feel like it's such a 60s mantra to say we all have to do this together. But I think that is the key. What do you think? Do you have an opinion on pharmaceutical companies? Because I know you've obviously been around uh, a lot of bands that have, I think, maybe been proponents of the positive effects of psychotropic drugs yeah. and I believe there are a lot of positive effects to things like mushrooms and yeah. you know natch and cannabis I don't smoke it myself but right. I know and have read a lot of stories about how that's been really helpful with people who've been you know going through cancer treatment and things like that and there are for me so many more positives in some of those illegal drugs than the prescribed and I'm you know specifically referencing a recent death Chris Cornell yeah. you know I don't know all the facts of that none of us do yet but or maybe never will but can someone like that really enter that kind of a frame of mind without perhaps being under the influence of these things that he's 
been prescribed and given by you know uh, it's hard to say but there are so many instances where prescription prescription medication has put someone in a much worse place than they were before they started taking it and a lot of the uh, anti-anxiety drugs and stuff until your dosage is dialed in properly you feel worse than you felt without it and so and then if if someone uh, takes the wrong dosage or, or you know or mixes it with something else there there's so many variables I, I have to agree that the organic drugs are, are much better um, my biggest uh, gripe with the pharmaceutical industry uh, in the states is just aside from the fact that certain drugs shouldn't be on the market at all they in the states they pay entirely too much for for medication and people even people that need medication that really works for them can't always afford it and it's because of the uh the system that we have that allows them to inflate the prices so much and then that's when you get people going on the street and right. looking for other exactly forms of- which is a huge problem in america right now though uh uh you know no one's ever killed themselves because they were smoking weed and then you look at people like Prince and Michael Jackson and Heath Ledger, and it seems to be a real problem amongst you know high-profile artists. Yeah, but so many of them seem to be passing away from overdoses from extremely strong painkillers. Yeah, but... it's a big problem. Uh, what's next for you after this album comes out? Warren? <clears throat> it comes out the tenth of June, right? Revolution come, revolution go. The yeah. title itself there is that a political title or is that more of a kind of liberation of the mind? It's uh, it's both. It, it, the title came from a, a song title, um, but the the lyrics to "Revolution Come, Revolution Go" uh, do have political connotations. Although the song is more uh, kind of a musical journey, it's about nine minutes long. It goes through a lot of different uh, uh, sections. But there are four or five songs out of 12 that do paint some, at least, uh, political connotations. Um, they tend to be more from an observer's standpoint. I, I'm not much for being on a soapbox or, or preaching, but I don't mind giving my opinion of what's happening in an observant sort of way. On a humanistic uh, level, what's yeah, going on? You know, there's a song, the, the record opens up with a song called Stone Cold Rage, which is really just about how angry people are. Uh, and it was written before the election, but it was written knowing that whichever way the election went, a lot of people were going to be pissed off. And they are. And I am. <laughs> <laughs> how's, how's life for you in general you know, at this stage in, you know? Other than the fact that the game. I've, le- I've lost Butch Trucks and Colonel Bruce Hampton and Greg Allman all within a four-month period, which has been completely uh, draining and, and uh, too much to process. But my life in general is really good i i have no complaints you know i'm just uh just mourning for my friends you know are you a family man yeah i have a five-year-old son and he's I bet uh, he keeps you on your toes absolutely <laughs> and, and he he's wonderful and and i spend every possible moment with him and you know uh when I travel and he can't come, then when I get home, it's me and him 24 uh, 7. My wife works as well. And yeah, it's uh, 
for me at this point in my life it's work and family and nothing else and you've had a blessed life, right? Absolutely. You've worked with some incredible people, I've heroes been, of yeah, yours. Absolutely. I mean, too many to mention, you know, but uh, it's. Uh, I feel very fortunate and grateful. Have you got any advice for any young people out there wanting to pick up a guitar and follow their own path? What have you learned that's uh, the sort of uh, the way to survive and stay sane? Well, I don't know <laughs> if, if, if my example is a good one, but every every decision I've ever made was based on just doing what I felt was right for me, never about trying to second guess what I thought people expected or wanted from me or what the marketplace or the music business was expecting. I always kind of just made selfish decisions and did what I wanted to do. Somehow it miraculously worked out. I guess my best advice to a young artist or musician would be don't limit your influences to just the past 5, 10, or even 20 years. Study music from going back 40 50 years and and even further if you feel like it but uh the more music you expose yourself to the the more of a chance of finding your own voice i hope that people do do that because one thing that i think is great about modern day music is that there aren't as many well maybe it isn't a good thing i don't know but there aren't as many genre boundaries and people kind of just listen to a bit of this and a bit of that i think that part's good uh you know uh and and you see a lot of young people that if you look at their music collection there's a lot of different things going on but uh let's say amy winehouse as a as an example if she hadn't exposed herself to a lot of old music like etta james and billy holiday and stuff like that then she wouldn't have been the artist that she was and i think every great artist has that uh that open-mindedness you know and every great original band is an amalgamation Absolutely. of weird, disparate, different ingredients yeah. that come together to create this unique flavor that's distinctly their own. And Absolutely. And having go. just enough similarity and just enough contrast to, to make it right. You know? What do you think about the music business these days, the record industry, well, or what's <laughs> left of it? <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, you know, in some ways, it's, uh, it, it's in a not-so-great place. Um, but in some ways it's encouraging for people to kind of take control of their own careers and do things their own way. Uh, the problem is, you know, in the old days, if you had a record company support or, uh, a budget to do the things that you really needed to do to experiment with, experiment with, to, uh, find out who you are as an artist, in some ways, you could achieve things that you can't finance yourself. And get in front of a lot more people Absolutely. Right, with the help of marketing. and Yeah, but then the payoff, uh, or the, the downside to that was, okay, well, somebody else owned this and this and this, and you didn't have c- control of your own career. Uh, I think we're hopefully headed toward a, a place where artists will uh, be able to control their careers more but but they won't be uh, so challenged because right now a lot of young artists can't afford to tour and a lot of them are looking at uh, their careers as five years ten years not as being a, a lifelong thing and I you know to me uh, 
artists and, and musicians, if you chose that route, you were in it for life. You know, I never thought, oh, I'll do this for five or ten years, then I'll go get a job as an executive somewhere, you know. You're a lifer. <laughs> Absolutely. The true rock and rollers are. <laughs> well, you kind of have to be, you know. I think, to sort of end it on this note, and you can tell me whether or not you agree, I think it's the responsibility of people of a certain age like yourself and bands of a certain stature to really help bring through the new bands as well, give them support slots on their tours, name-check them in interviews, and really usher in and kind of give a leg up. Absolutely. Because a lot of these young bands don't have the jump start that they did yeah and they're in a position financially and with the audience to really kind of and I, I i won't name any names but i see a lot of bands just being so lazy with who they take out on tour with them either one of their sons band and i get that or like they just don't you know even bother to look into whether or not they're a good fit and i think that if young old bands sorry took more of an interest in the younger generation and brought them out on tour and showed them some love and support they could give back yeah, in a meaningful way that would allow it to continue. Yeah, I think that's a valid point. There, there are bands like uh, there's a band that I'm involved with called the Marcus King Band uh, from America. That's really amazing. And Marcus is 21. Uh, almost all the the band members are in their early 20s, and they're a fantastic band uh, with a, a really bright career. And what I'm starting to see now is a resurgence of good musicianship uh which comes and goes kind of like a sine wave sometimes the music that we're listening to uh will just be maybe the songwriting is good but the musicianship not so much there's a lot of music going on in america right now where people are taking the singing and playing very seriously so i think we're on the verge of seeing some great music and it is cyclical isn't it yeah i think it is yes I think, you know, Nirvana didn't just come from out of nowhere and, right. ki- and kill off hair metal. It was a groundswell of about 10 to 15 years of underground going back to Black Flag and underground punk bands like that. And then right. it swells and swells and swells. And all of a sudden, right. You've got to be responding to something. You know, they're, they're, you've got to be rebelling against something. And, right. And, going back uh, to Elvis and the <clears throat> Beatles and all those guys, they yeah. didn't, again, just come from out of nowhere. They were taking influence from R&B and soul and rock and roll and... Yeah, we did uh, one time. We did the Conan O'Brien show with John Lydon, and uh, he's been on this podcast. He yeah. he referred to uh, some of the bands that they were rebelling against that that they hated, like uh, Yes and Emerson Lake and Palmer, both of which I'm a big Yes fan myself. Um, but he, because because he wanted to get a rouse out of us because we were backstage, he also included the Allman Brothers as one of the bands that really pissed them off, you know, <laughs> which uh, I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> and he's someone who's so self-aware and he knows what yeah, buttons to press. Absolutely. And he's a music fan. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and he was promoting his book, which is so, rightly so. And it sold out 48 hours before it came out <laughs> right. because of those kind of comments. Yeah. Uh, Warren, thanks so much for your time. This was a great talk. Uh, the new album is out. Well, this will actually go out when it's already out so it's out now is what i'm saying cool. um thanks for a great chat yeah. congratulations on an amazing career so far um and here's to whatever comes next i'm sure there's plenty more records still to come right i uh, sure hope so yeah good times thank you thank you Yeah.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 